You're listening to WNYC's podcast, featuring the best 2018 midterms coverage from our talk shows and our award-winning local newsroom. Keep in mind, some segments may be edited for length. You can find the full shows on your favorite podcast app. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. And speaking of national politics, it has, it has been another mind-blowing week, hasn't it? And Fridays are often the launching pad for more leaks, disclosures, and other political bombshells. So don't unbuckle your seatbelts just yet. Think about where we have been just over the last few weeks with the Paul Manafort convictions and the Michael Cohen plea. Don't those feel old now? And Cohen's lawyer characterizing the president as an unindicted co-conspirator in criminal campaign fraud. Then we had the Bob Woodward book excerpts this week, almost instantly erased from the headlines before the full book is even released by something that felt even bigger, the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times by a senior White House official saying there is a resistance inside the White House of staffers trying to save the country from Trump's worst instincts for the president and and the media that's turning into a whodunit. Then there are the Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation hearings, so important, and the fireworks there. The midterm election primary shocks, mostly in the Democratic Party, continuing this week in Massachusetts with Presley over Capuano. And this morning, often very relevant in election year, we have the August job numbers, and they are good, with once again more than 200,000 new jobs and an increase in wages, the record-length recovery from the financial crisis of a decade ago continues, and that's usually good for incumbents, which right now would mean Republicans in Congress, but this year, maybe, maybe not. With me now, NPR White House correspondent Aisha Rasko and Time Magazine national political correspondent Molly Ball. Molly has a Nancy Pelosi cover story this week. Hi, Molly. Hi, Aisha. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Aisha, you can tell us now who wrote the op-ed, right? <laughs> oh, well, you know, if, if if I had that information, I I would probably be a lot richer and a lot, <laughs> be ready with my book deal. So besides who did it, why did they do it and why now? It either reinforces the crazy town, White House, nervous breakdown theme of the Woodward book, or it steps on it. Do you get what the timing was supposed to be about, even if we don't know who wrote it? It's it's not really clear. Uh, there there was knowledge, obviously, that this Woodward book was coming out. So there you could speculate that maybe this person wanted to get out ahead of that and maybe to protect their reputation uh, to say, yes, this this White House is dysfunctional, but we have these um, the so-called steady state that they call themselves, these unsung heroes who are working to keep everything in check. Uh, that is speculation. We, we really don't know what the motivation was or whether this person completely thought this through. We did, maybe they didn't realize all the implications of, of, of sending uh, uh, an op-ed like this. But you would have to imagine that they knew that this would be a big, whoever it is, mm-hmm. knew it would be a big deal. And, and Molly's still on the timing right now this close to the midterms. Even though the writer seems to have generally Republican policy preferences, this person doesn't seem like somebody who wants 
Republicans in Congress to lose their power, I don't think, because they made a point of saying the president is doing some good things on a policy level for the country, prosperity and safety. So do you get it in that respect? You know, there's been a lot of guessing about some kind of calculated political motive, some kind of political strategy behind this op-ed. And I've thought it through uh, 10 ways from Sunday, and I'm sure there are people smarter than me, and it's always possible there is some complicated game going on. But honestly, the simplest explanation and the one that makes the most sense to me is simply to take the writer's motives at face value, that this is a simple act of self-expression by someone who, frankly, seems to be having a hard time living with himself. Uh, The reference to John McCain, McCain having been laid to rest over the weekend uh, in a funeral that featured so many uh, invocations of the nation's founding ideals and so many invocations of the principles that McCain espoused. This is a person who talk, who mentions McCain in the op-ed as a, a, a role model, as, a, as an inspiration. So my best guess is that this is someone who was genuinely tormented by looking at uh, a fallen, uh, a past hero like McCain, and then looking at the White House in which he describes himself and was simply moved to say out loud uh, the, the things that he knew. Listeners, your national politics thoughts and questions, welcome here at 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692 for NPR White House correspondent Aisha Rasko and Molly Ball from Time Magazine, 212-433-9692. Molly, two tracks of speculation I've been hearing on who. One is that it's a slightly lower-level person, like an assistant secretary of something, not a household name. There are about 100 people, I've read, who could be characterized as um, senior uh White White House. Uh, what 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 was it again? Um, Senior administration official. Thank yeah. you. Uh, that could that that title could apply to the other is that it might be Kellyanne Conway because she's got the most to lose right now. Whenever the Trump experiment collapses, she wants a media career after this job and needs to retain a shred of credibility and not just be seen as complicit with every worst thing about Trump. And also her denial out of the dozens of denials that came from administration officials yesterday was seen as lukewarm. Someone on Morning Joe today even said she's devious enough to use the word lodestar because people know that's a Mike Pence word just to throw people off the trail. So that might be a little sinister in terms of speculating that. But any thoughts on either of those scenarios? Uh, Well, I know Kellyanne a little bit. I wrote a profile of her about a year ago, uh, she, I wouldn't dispute the idea that she's devious enough to do it. Uh, it doesn't read like her work to me, and in what appeared to be an inadvertent uh, slip in originally posting the article, the Times did describe the author as a he. Uh, that said, I, I don't know who wrote it. I don't know uh, what other motivations they have. I do think on your point about uh, whether it could be a, a relatively junior person, uh, with all due respect to the Times, uh, it is almost impossible to overstate uh, the self-importance of the New York Times, and I don't think that they would have 
wanted uh, to take a step like this unless they really felt that it rose to a level that they could take seriously, uh, especially on the editorial page. And, you know, they faced the possibility that this person could be unmasked and uh, the Times would be profoundly embarrassed if it turned out to be some, you know, low-level flunky and not, in fact, a senior administration official. Have either of you thought about or had good conversations about why the writer chose the Times? Aisha, if their goal is to tell Trump supporters to get real about how off the rails their man is, that's not where you reach them. Or is that overthinking it? I don't I don't think that's overthinking it. But I think uh, I guess I would question whether they were really trying to reach Trump supporters. It seems like uh, who this was aimed at were are people that are concerned about the presidency uh, and and maybe even those conservatives who have concerns about, uh, you know, some of the things that President Trump is saying, you know, about locking up people on the other side and and with the Justice Department and, and basically uh, acknowledging that there are issues here, but there, there are people that are trying to kind of contain that. So I, I do think that if you if you put it in the New York Times, you're trying to speak to a very specific audience. I don't think it's the average Trump supporter that they were really trying to reach. I think it was, I hate to use words, the the elites, the people out there, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not really a a good word, but, you know, to the people out there, politicians, those type of people trying to send a message to conservatives and maybe top Republicans that this is what's going on. Also, Molly, when something starts in the New York Times, it gets chopped up, uh, you know, into bits on social media, and it's going to be arguably more well disseminated than anything that starts anywhere else. So that's from the overthinking it (laughs) argument that it doesn't matter who reads the New York Times. That's a good distribution point to anybody anywhere. Uh, But I don't know. You have a thought? Well, you know, I think Aisha's exactly right. It's this is this is if it's a specific message to anybody, it's to the the establishment, the Republican establishment, Republican members of Congress, Republican donors, the sort of uh, as she said, the elite and particularly wealthy people uh, who may be uh, confused or or even troubled by what they're seeing in Washington. It's so interesting to me that the piece does not contain any kind of directive or invocation. This writer doesn't say you know, this is what's happening and therefore we must do this. Or, you know, I call on Trump voters to face the facts. I call on, you know, Republicans in Congress to, to hold him in check. There, there is no directive. This person actually seems to be sort of at a loss and is merely making a declarative statement, really just sort of reporting uh, the situation that, that he or she sees inside the administration. Do you think it implies, though, that impeachment might be warranted since the writer brings up the fact that they considered a 25th Amendment unfit-for-office removal process and didn't go down that road only because it would be too complicated and fraught? Sure. I mean, and that's a pretty shocking admission. If it's true that that was being discussed at the cabinet level, uh, you know, this is an a very, very extreme remedy that has never been tried and, and, and it, that, uh, depending on your interpretation, really uh, requires uh, the president to be completely incapacitated. So it is quite remarkable that the writer dropped that in there. But again, here she doesn't actually say this is the way we should go. And with Molly Ball, national politics correspondent for Time Magazine, and Aisha Rasko, White House correspondent for NPR, Ben in Crown Heights. You're on WNYC. Hi, Ben. 
I think the op-ed is clear evidence that there's a coup going on in the White House in the sense that there's an unelected person doing an elected uh, official job. If you thought the election was a sham, it certainly is now. Um, and so I think at that level of a crime, I wonder whether the Times is actually protected by the First Amendment uh, and could be forced to unmask this person. And that would be the biggest gift to Democrats. If they play their cards right, if they see it, which I don't think they probably do, they could have an opportunity to pit Trump supporters and Democrats against the Republican establishment, unmask this person, and let Trump govern himself into the ground. Ben, thank you very much. That word coup, um, there are some Trump supporters who've been using that word Aisha, that this is kind of a soft coup. It's not a military coup, but it's this quiet thing that's been going on first behind the scenes where they try to manage the president's behavior, taking documents off his desk so he won't sign them, all these things that have been reported. Um, Now, maybe a little bit more public by a member of this team of administration officials, whoever they are, saying we're managing the president uh, is, is, coup's an explosive word. Sounds like something Steve Bannon would say. Um, but what, what, what do you think? Coup, coup is a very, uh, it is a very explosive word. And I think uh, what is interesting to me about this, I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not a legal expert, but I'm not sure that the, that the person in that, uh, article you really described any crime is it a crime to try to persuade the the president not to uh, do certain things or to uh, maybe not carry out his orders very quickly that would sound like something that's a fireable offense that you get fired for but not thrown in jail for but it it's also interesting to me that a lot of this this disconnect between President Trump and his administration is well known and documented uh, my colleague here at NPR Mar Eliason wrote about the shallow so-called shallow state that basically President Trump wasn't being undermined by this deep state these kind of deep bureaucrats but basically by the people directly under yeah. him. And you see that in the way he talks about Russia and the way his administration talks about Russia in a totally different way. Right. Uh, and you see that in policies with NATO and all these things. So it, you see that there is this disconnect there. And another way to look at this op-ed, Aisha, is that it's really not anything we didn't already know. I mean, Bob Corker, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was talking about adult daycare in the White House. He and Flake, I think, have confirmed that, uh, wait, we've been talking about this for for a year. Uh, This isn't anything new. All that's new is that some uh, White House uh, Trump administration official put it in the New York Times. And, and Ben Sass said the same thing, essentially, that he, he talks to multiple people a week within the administration who say similar things. So it wasn't really surprising. So you had there are some Republicans, uh, Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio uh, was on NPR uh, this morning. And, and so he's he did say that he doesn't really he hasn't heard things of this nature. But there are a lot of Republican lawmakers out there or there are some Republican lawmakers out there who are saying that they have heard these uh things along these this line these lines al in gowanus you're on wnyc hi al hi uh 
um, I want to bring up a certain point. Uh, granted that uh, Trump is getting a lot of bad marks on a whole lot of issues, but uh, we may be uh, underestimating uh, certain strengths of his. Uh, with regards to the economy, uh, for example, every time the jobless report comes out and it shows uh, another decline, uh, Trump is taking credit for that. The Republicans are taking credit for that. Uh, the majority of Americans uh, credit Trump and the Republicans for whatever they think is good about the economy. And I, I think we should be uh, concerned about that. Um, you know, there's very strong evidence that, for example, with regards to the jobless, uh, the, the declining jobless uh, rate, that uh, he does not deserve the credit for that, that uh, that that jobless rate ha is a continuation mm -hmm. of uh, that decline mm -hmm. since 2009. Uh, and Al, Al I'm going to I'm going to leave it there and I appreciate it. So Molly Ball, um, the new again for listeners who haven't heard the news, which just came out around eight o'clock this morning, the August job numbers, positive numbers, more than 200,000 new jobs and an increase in wages, and of course, wage stagnation has been such a problem even through the recovery in the number of jobs, which has been going on steadily for nine years. Um, and do you take the caller's point, Molly, that people are going to give too much credit to Trump because here we are, it's right now, the midterm elections are about to happen, so people are focusing on it, but this is really just the ongoing trajectory that Obama's policy started and haven't stopped. Uh, well, putting aside the question of whether or not Trump deserves any credit for the way the economy is doing right now, the thing that I actually find remarkable is that, yes, in fact, normally a president and his party's approval ratings and political fortunes track very closely with the unemployment rate and with the health of the economy. That is not the case for Trump, and it's actually a measure of uh, the degree to which Americans are actually are willing to look past their pocketbooks in order to disapprove uh, of the president, whether it's his behavior or anything else. Uh, his, the number of voters uh, who approve of his handling of the economy uh, falls short of 50 percent in most polls, which again is is surprising considering that the any political scientist will tell you normally those numbers rise and fall together. So uh, it's actually, you know, Republicans in Congress, they're the ones on the ballot this fall. Trump is not. And they are continually frustrated that Trump doesn't talk about this more. They wish that Trump would were consistently driving only a message about the economy, not tweeting about the Mueller investigation, not tweeting about fake news and Bob Woodward and opening up the libel laws, uh, because they feel like if he would just stop getting out of his way and mm -hmm. of their way, they could be making a much stronger case to the electorate about the way the economy is doing. So do you think there's any reason to believe that this year will be any different from any other election? Oh, I take that back. This year is so different from any other election year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. but, but that the fact that there's you know, a low unemployment rate and even a little bit of rising wages now um, doesn't wind up outweighing the fact that people think, a lot of people think, you know, the president is Looney Tunes? Well, look, what matters isn't necessarily how the economy is actually doing. It matters how people feel. And if people feel uncertainty, if people feel like even if things are going well, uh, they're not making ends meet, 
or they're not confident that this is sustainable. Uh, that is the attitude they're going to bring into the voting booth. But you said it yourself. Uh, predictions are out the window, and there is no normal anymore. Uh, and uh, if I ever made political predictions, which I've always tried not to do, <laughs> I certainly haven't done it since 2016. Yeah, and Aisha, as a White House correspondent, I don't want to put you in the position of making political predictions, but I do wonder if in the context of what we were just saying, the op-ed changes anything. I mean, it's a dramatic plot twist, but much of the country already thinks Trump is a combination of unhinged, authoritarian, and racist. The 30 or 40% who support him uh, get that other people believe those things, and they really don't care. And arguably, the fact that this comes out in the Times and looks to some like our first caller like a a soft coup attempt against the president might only fire up the Republican base rather than dissuade them. Uh, it, it could, and and there's been that argument that this will kind of, that this could possibly play in President Trump's favor because it it it. Uh, builds on his case that these people are working against him within his own administration, that this is what he's up against. It kind of helps him with that narrative uh, and it help, and it could help to motivate his base. I don't know if, and we will see what happens in November, whether uh, the, the his supporters will be so worked up and so concerned that they'll go out and vote for just whoever is on the ballot, whatever Republican is on the ballot, because Trump is not on the ballot. So will will he be able to uh, get people so concerned that they will go and vote uh, and whether that will outweigh the people who buy into this op-ed or who believe this op-ed and believe that that President Trump could be a threat. And so they need to go and vote for Democrats. I think that's the question that we don't we definitely don't know the answer to at this point. But that that's kind of what that's the key to all of this is like who who's going to be motivated more by this op-ed. Yeah. And Molly, John Kerry was here this week and we were recalling 2004 when he ran for president and lost and Democrats were so fired up by then because they hated George Bush so much with the Iraq war and no WMDs and torture and everything. Um, And Democratic turnout increased a lot compared to the Al Gore election in in 2000 or Al Gore campaign. Um, But Republican turnout went up even more and because they really supported what Bush was doing and he won re-election. So we don't know yet if it's which ways this is going to going to go this year. But Molly, your cover story in Time magazine is about Nancy Pelosi. Why her right now? Uh well, in fact, uh, because uh, we had room for the story now is the real answer, because <laughs> I reported this some months ago. Ah. No, but it's obviously timely with the midterms. Think about it. Uh, most of the predictions for the midterms, notwithstanding uh, the conversation we've been having, are that the Democrats are going to take the House of Representatives and probably not take the Senate. So the one thing that is going to change in the leadership of American politics, the one thing that's going to change hands on Capitol Hill is who is the Speaker of the House. Uh, Paul Ryan's going to be gone whether or not the Republicans lose. Nancy Pelosi, almost certain to win uh, a speaker vote, despite all the angst among Democrats, and there is quite a lot of it about uh, whether she's had her turn and needs to move on. Uh, She wants the speakership back. She was the first woman speaker. She thinks uh, she deserves one last chance. Uh, And so Nancy Pelosi is going to be the top Democrat uh, 
potentially in the country uh, when and if Democrats take the House by a large margin this fall. And, uh, you know, my, my piece also makes the case that if Democrats take the House, it will be because of women. It will be because of women voters. Women voters a lot like Nancy Pelosi. A lot of them are college-educated, uh, white suburban women. They're the ones who have most strongly swung against Trump and the Republicans and come out to vote in all of these special elections. It is a, it is a tidal wave of female rage that is driving the potential Democratic victory in this election. And yet, uh, Nancy Pelosi, rather than being lauded as sort of a feminist heroine and the, and the Democrats, uh, you know, evidence of, of female leadership, she's mostly talked about as a political problem, a political liability for the whole party. Uh, and Republicans uh, would like nothing better than for her to be the, the face of the Democratic Party this fall and beyond. You mentioned control of the Senate as well. Let me just tick through a couple of clips here relative to the Kavanaugh hearings uh, for one last topic for us. And my guests are Molly Ball, national politics correspondent for Time Magazine, and Aisha Rascoe, White House correspondent for NPR. This is one of the things that Donald Trump said when he was running for president. Do you want to see the court overturn Roe v. Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be, that will happen. And that'll happen automatically, in my opinion, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. Trump with Chris Wallace on Fox back then. So yesterday at the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, Senator Lindsey Graham kind of tried to press that point when uh, he asked about abortion and the Constitution. Is there any phrase in the Constitution about abortion? The Supreme Court has found it under the Liberty Clause, but you're right that specifically... Well, is there anything in the Liberty Clause talking about abortion? The Liberty Clause refers to liberty. Okay, uh, but well, not, does not last have time specific. I checked, liberty yeah. didn't equate to abortion. I, uh, the Supreme Court said it did. So that was interesting to me, Aisha, because most of what we heard yesterday was Democrats trying to box in Kavanaugh to say what they think he believes. No, I really think Roe was wrongly decided, and I will vote to overturn it if I'm given the chance. This was Lindsey Graham from the other side trying to, to box him in, and he wouldn't take the opposite bait either. And, and, and Kavanaugh didn't. The thing about these hearings that kind of makes them, I guess, kind of, even though there was a lot of drama with these, but with Cam Kavanaugh's answers, he's not giving away really uh, where he, uh, his positions on these things. I think people generally have their own ideas and interpretations of what he's going to do based on uh, his record. But in these hearings, he's very guarded. So he's not going to kind of tip his hand and to say, this is what, this is exactly what I'm going to do. But it seems unlikely he would have been chosen if they didn't right. think that he would be hostile to Roe v. Wade. Exactly. Trump was quite explicit about that. And we know about that list of conservative judges uh, that he made that seemed uh, tailored to that among among other issues. Anything to add on that, Molly? It did seem like a revelation when what he said or what he wrote from, I think, 15 years ago came out just this week uh, that he said, legal scholars don't all agree that Roe is settled law. Some think it is and some think it isn't, which sounds like something somebody who didn't want to consider it settled law would say. Well, 
it's suggestive, but not uh, dispositive, as a lawyer might say. He wasn't saying that was his personal opinion, that it wasn't settled law, only that there existed a difference of opinion in the legal community, and that's absolutely the case. And that's something that someone who traveled in conservative legal circles would be particularly aware of, uh, whether he agreed with it or not. Uh, I mean, I'm not a Supreme Court expert. A lot of the Supreme Court experts I've spoken to, though, seem to think that more likely than a wholesale overturning of Roe v. Wade is that you would get cases that nibble around the edges and impose more and more restrictions on abortion, uh, and uh, and that could be the effect of a potential conservative justice. And did either of you watch the Cory Booker drama yesterday where the senator from New Jersey said he was risking expulsion from the Senate because he was going to release what was supposed to be a committee confidential email having to do with Brett Kavanaugh and racial profiling. Um, and then it came out, and I think it looked like Kavanaugh was opposing racial profiling. Either either of you have the details of that? Well, it, uh, we, we talked about uh, this a bit, but it seems like so. It seems like the, the email that came out, uh, there was uh, Kavanaugh did express uh, opposition maybe to racial p- profiling, I think, in airports. Uh, but he kind of acknowledged that it might take time to get to race neutral, uh, I guess, uh, to race neutral kind of like criminal programs like for profiling not profiling um and that there could so i guess that there could be some leeway until uh tactics uh were developed that were race neutral so uh, but the the whole thing about the documents and kind of that standoff the 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 tension was kind of taken out later when it came out that the documents were approved to be released anyway so it's just not clear like what all of that drama was actually about or whether uh, because both Booker and other and Republicans didn't seem to acknowledge that these these emails were already going to be publicly released. Mm. And that will be the last word for today. Uh, But listeners blink and four other hyper dramatic things will happen by the time you open your eyes. We thank Aisha Roscoe, NPR White House reporter and Molly Ball, national political correspondent for Time. Her cover story with Nancy Pelosi on the cover is out now. Thank you both so much. We really appreciate your time on what I know is an extremely busy day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, visit wnyc.org slash election.